Good morning, friends. This is my uh, first speaking to people that I've done in six months. We, we have a drive-in service, so I normally speak to cars. So it's uh, a little bit different. My favorite is when the, like, the three-year-olds get a hold of the windshield wipers, and you know it's like... <laughs> but I want to say... Um, it is, I am glad to do this first one live to support the faithfulness of you all at Cornerstone Covenant and to support Greg and Amanda and uh, to see them today. I'm glad they got to me to cry before I got up here. It's really good. I was hoping to start with that, to mist up my mask even more. Um, thank you for your faithfulness for those two. Um, they are amazing. We love them so much over in Santa Cruz. We got to steal her last year. I know the PSWC, I serve on the board there. We love them so much on the PSWC board. And we're all just praying for you all as a church. And for your pastors, we're just know your brothers and sisters in Santa Cruz are always thinking about you. We're always praying for you in our leadership team meetings and our staff meetings uh, right now for your journey and especially for your healing, Amanda, and for you, your peace, Greg, in this time. So, okay, no more of that. During COVID, I have run. Anybody gotten more exercise? Anybody gotten outside a little more during COVID? A couple people have. I've been running more, and I know you're looking at me like he looks like a runner. I don't. I look like a chubby Sasquatch is what I look like, um, and I look like one running. It's very fun. Uh, but if you ever come to Mission Springs, I live. I live in Mission Springs. If you ever come, four times, five times a week, I start at my house at the bottom, right by the pool, and I run to the top to Eagles Landing, and I run back down. Um, it's not pretty. It is. Definitely not fast. Um, I'm usually freaked out by the mountain lion I know is in one of the trees. And I haven't met her yet, but I know she's there somewhere. And I don't run for my physical health. I don't run for my mental health necessarily. I run because I'm angry all the time in COVID. All the time. I'm just mad. I don't even know what I'm mad at half the time. I'm just mad. Comes out in driving, comes out all the time. And I have found that when I run, I can shift anger to gratitude. So when I start up the hill, like if you've been to Mission Springs, most of my church lives in Mission Springs. So people will see me and be like, hey, Jeremiah. And I'm like, I'm not going to wave at them on the way up. I'm angry. I don't want to see anybody. By the time I get down the mountain, I'm like, hey, Todd. And I'm running nicely. And I'm having lots of fun. Not just because it's downhill, part of it. Uh, but also just because I've burned my anger. And I have learned that if I run and get out and be physical, I burn anger, and it turns for me into a kind of gratitude throughout the run. If I feel depression, if I feel anxiety, I go and I hit the hill and I run. And by the time I hit around the back where the scary mountain line I know is, I'm usually transferring my anger into gratitude. My anger is turning into something else. And I think I need this to be healthy. For my emotions, I have to process them and not avoid them. I was raised in a culture much like this one, Monta Vista Chapel. Um, and I was raised here, and I was raised that to be a Christian meant to be nice. So when you come to church, you brought your best, happiest self to church. You brought, I'm, yeah, I love God. We're good all the time. Oh, yeah, God is good all the time. My marriage, perfect. Yours, perfect too. Awesome. Um, that's what you brought to church. It was the good things. It was happiness. There was never anything wrong. And uh, it's never worked out for me to do that. I don't need to be authentic or anything. I just feel like church, it's not what we're meant to do at church. And the ancient Hebrew people had a much easier time of bringing what they were dealing with to church and they had language for what they were dealing with. And those were called the Psalms. Their Psalms gave language to the feelings they had. And every feeling you've ever had, I guarantee, is in a Psalm somewhere. 
even the bad ones, even the dark ones, even the ones you don't tell anybody about, they would gather and sing these to express corporately the way you were feeling because you were expected to come to church or synagogue or temple as you actually were, not as you should be. As my friends would say, stop shooting all over me. Right? Right? Seriously. Because that's what it is. We walk in this space like, well, you should be grateful. Well, you should be happy. At least you have something. Don't tell me what I should do. <laughs> Don't tell me what I should do. Take me as I am, because God does. And what we do, the unfortunate process of that is when we tell everybody they should come like a certain way, then we're telling them God doesn't accept them until they're a certain way. I know, I know we're not meaning to do that. But we're, in our happiness and niceness, we have missed out on what the Hebrews were able to do, which is to express the full human emotional experience to God anytime they came to church or synagogue. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. But I want to intro a little bit more into the Psalms here, because Psalms give us access to our emotions. And they give us permission to express these emotions, even taboo ones, in the presence of community. The Psalms give us permission to express good emotions and hard emotions in the presence of community. And I think this validates emotions while not justifying violent action. Hear that again. When we're able to do this in community, we're able to validate hard emotions while at the same time not justifying the actions that would come with those. Revenge, vengeance, hurting someone, hurting with language, hurting with physical violence. So meaning, we get to express anger and sadness and joy and gratitude and depression and doubt and faith and hope. The Psalms gives us language for these, thereby giving us permission, maybe even encouraging us to bring these to our church community. For instance, you ever heard the Psalm? May God do to you what you have done to us. May he bash your babies on the rocks. Try singing that at church, huh? May he bash your babies on the rocks. Amen. I, I think it's a little more metal, like Metallica or something. But why? You're like, that's horrible. Why is that in the Bible? Because they had gone through so much harm Israel had in Babylon. The only way they could express it was to come together and say horrifying things so they didn't do them. They said them together because they were real and they felt them in their heart. It was so painful. They had to say the words. You have taken my closest friends from me, and darkness is my only friend. Psalm 88. Give language to what? Our depression. Uh, that's the COVID psalm. Ecclesiastes, Psalm 88. That's just what they are, right? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. That's COVID for sure, right? These give language, the Bible does, to what we're already feeling, thereby giving us permission to say, this is you, and God accepts you for that. Not just puts up with it, bring this to him. You are accepted for this feeling you're having. Don't need to fix that before you come here. This is what the Psalms do for us. Come as we are, to come as we are. And so as we jump into Psalm 139 this morning, I might give you a little different reading of it that expresses some of these emotions, I hope, as we dive into the psalm. So if you have a Bible, Psalm 139 or on your, on your device, I will read it this morning as we do this together. Psalm 139 is a very rare psalm. It's a rare individualist psalm. It's the rare psalm that gives you insight into one person's journey with God. Most psalms are about us, or we, or y'all, if you're from Texas. Y'all. But this is about a one person's journey with God and understanding what their individual journey with God was like. So let me pray and we'll read parts. I'll go through Psalm 139 in chunks here, okay? Father, 
Thanks for this morning. May these words change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I can't attain it. Where will I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness covers me and the light around me becomes night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. I, read this, I was raised reading this first part of Psalm 139, these first 12 verses, as giving people hope, right? That God's always with you. Like, it's really neat. Like, God's your BFF, and he's always around you. And you can read it like this, like, you, God, you know me. You're always around me. You search my paths. You're never going to let me out of your hand. It sounds dreadful to me. That sounds dreadful. Because I think the psalmist wants it to sound dreadful. Sounds like I don't ever get any space to myself. Sounds like COVID. <laughs> my teenagers and my dog and I never giving a break. That goes well. One Jewish rabbi noted that this is from David, whose life was a series of tests and struggle and pain. I imagine there were days David would have liked it if God would have left him alone. Nope, I'm good, God. You can pick someone else to pursue for a while. I'm good. How about if we read it? And by the way, I think these first 12 chapters are meant to be read as the writer is overwhelmed with the presence of God all the time. They're tired. How about a depressing reading? Lord, you search my path all the time, my lying down. You're acquainted with everywhere I go. I can't even escape you in death. I can't even go to the other side of the sea. You're going to be there. Now, what is this experience? This is where God is experienced as an outsider. Now, God is being experienced by someone still. They know there's something out there bigger than themselves. Maybe you have friends like this. They're experiencing something, but they can't seem to get away from that thing they're experiencing. Like, wow, I run into this thing everywhere. And I would tell you, oh, that's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is chasing you. You're in so much trouble. When Jesus starts chasing you, when, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus and that's Jesus. And like, no, it isn't. I'm like, yeah, that's him. For sure. For sure. I, I know him pretty well. 15, 20 years now. I, that's him. Got his fingerprints all over it. And this is what it is. So I've wondered about this space. So we, I was, I'm going to ask some questions. I do my theology in public. It's not healthy, but I do it anyway. Um, first question, maybe this is an agnostic space where we're being, we feel like God's this outsider who won't leave us alone. Where a person knows God exists, but is not ready for a relationship with God yet. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hands upon me. And honestly, in my experience, this is most people who have not come to church yet, but who are being pursued by God, as I said. Maybe this also could be a hurt space for some people. It's a space where they've been hurt by a church or pastors or other believers. Maybe they're disappointed in God because of disease or harm in their family. Then God as an outsider might be experienced as a break from the church. And then God as an outsider might be like all your church friends, like, hey, where you been? 
in. And you're like, shut up. And they're just trying to be nice. You're like, stop following me around. And you're like, I'm just asking, just hoping you're well, right? We experience God in Christ as like an outsider at that point. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So you might hear people who leave the church say, I need a break from God. I need a break from you, Lord. I need a break from you, Christians. I just need a break. Probably all of us have experienced this at one point or another. You may have never stopped coming to church, but you might have needed a break, right? From the Christian life, from the pursuit of God, from all these things. Or maybe this is a space we all experience regularly. Maybe as we live life, there are times that cause us to grow that are hard. By the way, I have found spiritual growth means God gets bigger. So as I, as I grow spiritually, God becomes a bigger being, which usually means there's more people he loves that I didn't think he loved. I mean, I know God loves everybody. But to experience, like, oh, you love them too. Oh, even 49ers fans. Oh, wow. That's a big deal. <laughs> Sorry, Raider Nation. Um, so even like, so there's these groups, right? As God gets bigger, your experience of God gets bigger. As your experience God gets bigger, there are times it's like, I don't even know you anymore, God. You're too big for me. Now it's a re-exploration to see God again as an outsider. Maybe when a God gets bigger, these words describe our experience. Then they went to exile, and Ezekiel saw Yahweh in Babylon. By the way, this is what happened to the Israelites all the time. They go into exile. They think God won't be here because he's in the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel sees God like Yahweh stroll by, and it blows his mind. He loses his mind, literally. He lays on his side and freaks out for like a year. Because God should not be in Babylon. God belongs in the temple. He doesn't travel. He's our God there. And when he saw him in Babylon, he realized, wait, God's way bigger. And it became this antagonistic, may I even say doubt? I'll put a word doubt to that. It can feel like doubt. When God gets bigger, it can feel like a season of doubt, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It means God has grown. You're like, okay, I don't have the brain space or the experience to put words to this new God. Now it feels like he's too big for me and he feels almost like an outsider. And the psalm gives us language for that. Uh, Psalm 139 gives us permission to bring these to God. You feel like an outsider to me. You feel like I'm not not a part of you anymore. You're not a part of me. I need you to leave me alone for a while. I need a break. This gives us language to say this to God together. You search me and you know me. I can't even go to death or the sea and get away from you. Santa Cruz, you're even in Santa Cruz, barely, but even a little bit in Santa Cruz, you're even there. So maybe if this is you right now, you're okay. Welcome to church. Well done. It means you're experiencing God. It means God's pursuing you. There's a ton of grace and love and mercy in that, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. By the by, uh, good religious people do not feel this, but probably good humans do. Richard Rohr recently said that Jesus did not come to teach us to be spiritual or moral or religious. He came to teach us to be humans. And I've been living into that quote during COVID. It feels right to me. It feels very right to me. Jesus was the son of man, which means fully human one in the literal kind of Greek sense. It's the fully human one, the one who came to show us what it was to be human. So we have the first part, which may be a feelings of antagonism between us and God. It may feel like God's a kind of outsider to us right now. Verse 13, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, none of, when none of them yet existed. So here's our turn, right? God was outsider. Now God becomes the trusted insider. We've watched someone's internal journey during this song. You would sing at church, by the way, at, at, at the temple. God feels like an outsider, and now he's become a trusted insider. You went from running from God in the first part that the text seems to describe, moving everywhere, trying to get away from his presence, to this being comfortable with the one that is unavoidably present even inside of you, even inside of us. So what's this look like when we move from God as outsider to God as an insider? Well, it looks a lot like accepting love. Do you ever take communion? You love me and I accept that love. I accept your death and resurrection. I accept the reconciliation. I accept that I am beloved. Most of our activity, the reason you sat here, it's not because you were special. Sorry. It's because you accepted the love of the God of the universe. That's, that's what you did. Now, you might have talked yourself into you're more important than you really are, and I do it all the time too. Trust me. But in reality, all we've done together is said we're beloved, and we accept that. We don't fight that. We're in the second part of the psalm together which is, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. By the way, it also accepts that we have very little control over ourselves, which is a part of spiritual growth. We accept that God is bigger than us and we are small. We accept that there are things going on. I am, I'm a creature. I, am, I didn't make myself. I'm not a self-made man. God made me, and his grace has gotten me this far as where I stand today. So the writer seems to look inside himself, and see God's fingerprints and have a change of heart. The writer seems to look inside of herself and sees God's fingerprints all over her insides. Well, you're here already, and she has a change of heart. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know full well. Completely different tone than the first part of the psalm. We're going through this journey with this writer. So there's a turn again when the God moves from outsider to trusted insider. What does this person seem to experience here? Gratitude, right? Feels right. There seems to be a sense of gratitude, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, um, but it doesn't seem to be something the author chooses. And in all fairness, if you're fair with yourself, your moments of gratitude probably aren't something you got yourself to. Yeah? You ever just run into a moment and you're like, I am so grateful for who, what I have, I'm grateful for my own existence. I'm grateful for my friendships. It's rare that I sit down and do that because I'm not good at that. God usually has to stop me in my tracks in the grocery store on a drive and just make me feel overwhelmed with gratitude. So we have a little sense of that in this text. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This gratitude that pours out once the writer realizes it's not an antagonistic spirit chasing them, but a spirit of love that when accepted, there's a wholeness that happens through Jesus Christ. Of course, we could ask the question, do we ever get to choose gratitude? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but maybe gratitude is a response to something deeper. C.S. Lewis called it joy. He called it joy. And joy isn't like, yay, okay? Uh, joy is, he called it something like, it wasn't a feeling of happiness as much as a feeling of connectedness to everything. A feeling that you, that everything is bigger than you and yet you're connected to all of it and not separate from all of it. It's a glimpse into our own smallness and the bigness of God and us being okay with that relationship. Like, oh, I'm small. He's big. I think I'm okay with that. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. 
I'm panicked a little bit there, but now I'm good, right? And there's these moments where we, we have, uh, dare I call this contentment? I don't know what that is, by the way. Paul once said, uh, I am content no matter what the circumstances. And every time I read that, I'm like, show off. <laughs> I haven't been content for six and a half months, seven months. There's been very little contentment. By the way, with joy comes this kind of amazement. Oh, I am so fearfully, wonderfully made. Look at this. How did I do this? Oh, ah, that was amazing. How do I control this? How do I have an interior life? How do I move around and have relationships with all of you? How do I repair all the things I've screwed up in life? There's this amazement that God's moving around us. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not a brag. It's not telling you you're special. Because fearfully and wonderfully made is not about you. Sorry. I know we use it in the self-esteem kind of movement in the last 30 years. If you went to church, I always hated this verse. Because it was like, you're important. You're big and important. And I'm always like, no, you're not. Sorry. Sorry, the Bible has that nowhere. Sorry, Jesus, very important. Us, we're humans. He loves us, and that gives us our importance. We're not, we're not important. We're not in our own importance, right? We're going to take us down a notch. So wonderfully, fearfully made is not about you. This is not written to help your self-esteem. This is, not about the, this is about the wonders of God, of gratitude for existence. When was the last time you were grateful that you had the honor of existence? I mean, we're, look at this. We're alive. We've had the honor of existing. The odds were against you existing. But yet you are here. You were formed in the depths of the earth, in the mind of our Lord, inside your mom. By him, he has seen all of this. When was the last time you just were like, I'm so grateful just to be alive and have life and have family? These are the, these are the spaces that this writer invites us into. Now, a little footnote. Because there's a weird part of this psalm, as there is for all of these, by the way. How weighty to me are your thoughts, says verse 17. How vast the sum of them. I try to count them, and they are more than sand. I come to the end, I am still with you. Oh, Lord, that you would kill the wicked. <laughs> oh, God, the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up, I guess you real. That's a weird turn. <laughs> a little strange in the thing. Footnote, I love the ending. You're not supposed to be angry at church. Right? Never. We do not bring anger to church. This is where we're nice. We're nice people here, right? But this is a communal reading like our hymnal, right? So you might sing like, Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O Lord, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Amen, right? You would sing this at church. Why would you sing this at church? Intimacy with God, going from outsider to insider, allows me to trust him with the most devious and dark parts of myself. Now I can say words. I can say words. Maybe if you said this about Democrats slash Republicans, whoever you don't like, um, at church, you'd have less anger on Facebook. Maybe you came here and you're like, Lord, destroy Republicans, Democrats, and all that they believe in. You say that. You're like, well, we don't believe that. I know we don't. We say it because you think it. We say it because you already think it. And if we say it, we give it to God, and we let God see our hearts and let him, him heal those spaces. Him heal. And by the way, I've started plenty of Facebook fights. So I'm not up here as a noble, virtuous person. It's my, it's, my, it's my hobby during the COVID. It's good. Richard J. Clifford notes that this psalm has two parts, which I've already mentioned. I'm repeating it again for you. This poem's unique, rec- recording an individual's experience with God, first as an intimidating outsider, and then as a nurturing insider. 
Only after experiencing the range of God's power and beauty does the psalmist comprehend his or her place in the system and the malignance of anger and sin. First seeing God as the outsider, then the insider. Is that a regular thing for us? Probably. Probably there's days where I'm like, I don't like you much. And then the next day I'm like, ah, we're good. I can see you here, right? I tell you, my run from the bottom to top, God's an enemy. God's a friend again by the time I get to Eagles. Because we've worked through it together. I've expressed anger. I won't tell you the words I use. They're for me and God only. Thank you. But I tell them how I'm feeling about my kids, my teenagers that don't like online classes and haven't done homework for three months. Um, uh, what my church, that I can't meet with my church, makes me angry. That I have to see people that are hurting, that I can't even go in their homes to visit them if they're dying in a hospital. I'm mad. So God and I have it out on the run. And he goes from outsider to insider. And he shows me where he is and what he's doing. And sometimes we're mad at each other, I think, but that's another sermon for maybe next time. Another way to note this is that we see God first as an untrusted antagonist and then as a trusted confidant. And this is not one and done, I don't think. It's a series of life and event. What if this is what growth looks like for us? God gets bigger. I'm confused by this new view of him. His grace and love and mercy move in me, and now I recognize him again because of that love. What if it's what conversion looks like? And what if we're converted over and over and over again. Maybe a conversion wasn't a one-time thing. It was a continual process of our growth. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul tells us. And maybe that's what this looks like. We live in the cycle of leave me alone to gratitude to seeing God everywhere and expressing our inmost being over and over again, friends. Do not be discouraged by that. Be encouraged that God is on the move in you, that he loves you, and this is a normal process to be brought into the Psalms and at church to do together. Beloved, our Lord knows you so well. He knows all of you already. You are already loved and fully accepted by him. This is what the Psalms teach us. Bring it to me, my child. Say the hard words and know that you are loved. Grace and peace to you, Cornerstone Church.